0: example, let's turn our attention to James chapter 5. We are looking at the final two verses of the book of James this morning. Chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. Before we begin, let me pray. Lord, thank you for this privilege to come together Lord, the different things can be racing through our minds right now. I pray that you help us to focus on what is most important. Help us fix our gaze on you. And help us to receive from your word the work of your Holy Spirit. In your name we pray. Amen. James 5, verses 19 and 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Now, it's clear from the beginning, what James is giving us here is not a how-to. This isn't a step-by-step instruction manual for how to bring someone back that has wandered from the truth. It's more just a statement of fact. If they are brought back, if someone brings someone back, this is the result. They've saved their soul from death and they've uh, covered over a multitude of sins. But it's not just a statement of fact of course, because James wants to motivate us with the final words he is writing to us. He wants us to see the eternal significance of helping to bring back the soul that has wandered from the truth. Now, at first glance, these final two verses can seem like, well, a fairly abrupt ending to James' letter. On further inspection, I think we'll find that they actually fit perfectly. And I don't mean that just because James tends to be a fairly abrupt uh, person in how he brings his confrontations to us. He's not giving a final greeting here like we often might see in one of Paul's letters because he isn't writing um, to a specific individual or even a specific church. He's writing more to a broad audience. Um, Instead, his final words act more like a purpose statement for this entire letter. I want us to go back to the beginning for a minute, the very beginning of the book of James, chapter 1, the first four verses. James writes, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now the idea that we've been running with this entire time that we've been looking at this letter is that it is not just a bunch of unconnected teachings... Or perhaps the New Testament version of Proverbs as some have suggested. Instead, James is concerned for the scattered church and he is giving some tests of faith. The church he is writing to that is dispersed now is the church that he was helping to lead in Jerusalem before everyone scattered at the persecution of Stephen. James and the apostles have the challenging task of trying to serve and, and provide some direction for numerous congregations that have sprung up across the countryside as a result. Churches that are trying to make the best of the situation they find themselves in. No, the leaders in Jerusalem can't personally be with each of these congregations. Reports have been filtering back to them that are concerning. And so, James wants to get his message to them. Some encouragement, some warnings, some things to look out for. Because he's concerned that they do well. And as James writes, he acknowledges that, that life is hard right now. That is, readers find themselves in circumstances that they were not planning for or expecting. James seeks to give them perspective in the midst of their trials. That these trials that have come your way are actually tools of God to test and reveal your faith. And these trials are often are also doing the often unpleasant work of producing steadfastness in you. These opening verses are more than just an acknowledgement that life is hard and a call to suck it up. They serve as a sort of heads up for what is coming the rest of this letter. James wants his readers to be mature in faith so that they're lacking in nothing. So as he writes to these dispersed saints undergoing trials of various kinds, his primary goal isn't just comfort or even encouragement in tough times. He isn't offering trite platitudes regarding how their difficult circumstances will make them stronger he spends much of the next five chapters getting up in their grill and making them ask tough questions. We've remarked numerous times how James doesn't pull any punches in his addresses to us. And frankly, trials of persecution and exile, poverty and an uncertain future, they, they just aren't James's biggest concerns. Instead, he uses circumstantial trials as a launch pad to bring up the even more important realm of the testing of their faith. James has been taking us through tests of faith like how we use our tongues, whether we show partiality, what our fights and quarrels look like, as well as our relationships with wealth, with prayer, and with one another, all in an attempt To help us examine whether our faith really works. Again and again, James pokes and prods to ask, is our faith genuine? Do our lives give evidence of what we profess to believe? James is perfectly content using the pointy end of the stick in order to wake up any who might be too comfortable. Because... James is aware that anyone that realizes that their faith is more declaration than demonstration can turn if they see the reality of their situation and find eternal comfort in the risen Redeemer. He's not concerned about our comfort in the moment as much as He is our eternal comfort and joy. And so he's willing to make us uncomfortable here and now so that we might be redeemed and have certainty of the hope we have forever. And those who are genuinely faithful throughout his letter are reminded that it isn't their faithfulness that wins the day. Because none of us live up every requirement no one gets out of this letter unscathed all of us have to face some hard realities in the mirror as we come to this book but seeing God at work for us and within us points us to the faithful savior and it should produce within us gratitude for the grace of God And it enlists us to be ambassadors for the God of grace. In other words, we pursue others because God has pursued us. So these last two verses contain an appeal for us to be about the gloriously good work of bringing sinners back from destruction. And... I think these final two verses are a great description of what James himself has been seeking to do throughout this entire letter. He wants to help bring wandering readers back to the Savior. He has been warning those in danger of wandering that going their own way is a fool's errand. He's been sounding the alarm to those that have already wandered off the path to recognize that they have no reasonable ability to assume that they are safe. Just because they say they believe in Jesus or said a prayer or walked an aisle Or had an experience at summer camp. We don't have the ability to assume we're safe if our lives are revealing something different. Everyone should soberly examine what the evidence of their life reveals. Is our faith real or are we playing make believe? Upon further inspection, some might discover the need for true repentance and faith and turn to Christ for real with their whole hearts and lives. While those that have wandered from the truth, well, the reality is they're more likely to have stopped inspecting or maybe even from caring about the truth Altogether. So, James enlists his readers as a search and rescue squad. Since not all who are lost are looking to be found, they need someone to come after them. A guide to help them find their way back. And as hardline as James often comes across, his appeal here isn't coming from a get-your-act-together, drill sergeant mentality. James cares about these scattered sheep. And James himself, he's not coming from a place of superiority or self-righteousness. Because James himself had someone that pursued him, to bring him back. His half-brother Jesus. The reality is James probably viewed himself as having the inside track with God. He he was a Jew, one of God's chosen people. He grew up in the most godly home in the history of the world. He likely shared a room with Jesus. I mean, most homes at the time, one, maybe two rooms in the home. So kids are all together. Yet, that didn't make him a follower of Jesus. John 7 reveals that Jesus' brothers did not believe in him. From a purely human standpoint, that may surprise us at first. It's Well, if we think a little further, it's not that hard to imagine. I mean, it can be difficult growing up in the shadow of a fallen, gifted sibling. What would it have been like to grow up in the shadow of a perfect, gifted sibling, one whose moral code never faltered, who had a wisdom even at age 12 that amazed the best teachers in the land. Do you perhaps think there, there was any resentment from his siblings over special treatment Mary and Joseph might have given him from time to time? After all, he, he was special and different. And they were human and fallen. He was the only birth announced in the family uh, by angels and declared the work of the Holy Spirit. Do you ever think that those stories came up around the dinner table? And I mean, if The other Joseph, the Old Testament Joseph's brothers got so jealous they wanted to kill their brother. Do you think that at least some of these stories and recountings that mom was sharing would have created at least some eye rolls and limited patience? Yeah, we know mom gold, frankincense, and myrrh. A whole host of angels. How many is that again? All, all, all the shepherds. Wow, that's, that's great. And Herod killed how many babies? Trying to get him? I mean, the reality is, is there any scenario as a parent in which an angel tells you your miracle baby is going to be God's chosen Messiah And then you have it confirmed by all these signs and wonders. And you don't tell your other kids about that? Now, not to compare, but you want them to believe. You want them to be as convinced as you are of what God is doing in your brother and through your brother. But what's that like for his siblings? Does that mean that they were always excited to hear those stories? As Jesus matured, do you think he received a level of trust and deference that his brothers might not have received? In Matthew 13, Jesus and his disciples came to Nazareth, his hometown, and he was teaching there. But it says that the folk there took offense at him And he didn't do many works there because of their unbelief. And he makes kind of what sounds like an exasperated statement that comes with probably a certain degree of heartache and pain when he declares a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. He was used to not being accepted and embraced for who he really was, even within his own household. And from other places in Scripture, it doesn't seem that they were just on the fence and unsure regarding Jesus. In Mark 3, we read of one point early in his ministry where Jesus is teaching, and it says his family went to seize him because they thought he is out of his mind. In Jewish culture, when the father died, it was the responsibility of the oldest son to take care of family affairs, to provide for the mother and any children still at home. It's part of why the eldest sons received a double portion of inheritance. They were entrusted with the responsibility of maintaining family honor and integrity, the family name, which gives us some. Perspective and helps us understand the plight of, of different widows we read in Scripture, whether it's Naomi from Ruth and just her sons dying and her having no one to then care for her and to have income or widows whose only sons died. But we see Elijah and, and Jesus bringing them uh, back to life But those were devastating losses because not only had their husband passed, but now their sons who were their retirement plans were taken from them as well. And so we see in these stories the care of God in providing for them. But it's a place of heartbreak. And this is likely what is behind Jesus' statement on the cross as well to John and to Mary as, as he says, Behold your mother and behold your son, Because none of Jesus' brothers at this time, we have any indication that they were followers of Jesus at his crucifixion. And he's practically seeking to care for, ensure the care of his mother. So if Jesus has this cultural responsibility or expectations upon him, could it also be that a source of tension and resentment when he starts his itinerant ministry... Those that are left home are wondering what's going on. The responsibilities of providing for the family where there's at least four named brothers and a number of sisters as well that we're told of in Scripture. That responsibility fell on someone else, likely the next brothers in line. It was likely felt by all. This could be part of the reason that Maybe they thought he was out of his mind. You're going and you're doing these things. He's speaking to growing crowds. He's performing miracles. Healings. And yet, we're not feeling the benefit of this. There's zero indication any of Jesus' brothers believed in him prior to Acts 1. When after the ascension, Mary and Jesus' brothers were We're told we're gathered in the upper room worshiping with the disciples. What happened? Well, Paul actually gives us a really big clue in 1 Corinthians 15 verses 3 through 8. He writes, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas, Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely board, he appeared to me also. Paul here is telling just of the resurrected Christ coming and encountering different people, transforming everything they know. Sometime between his resurrection and his ascension, the resurrected Jesus appeared to James to reveal the truth that was before him his entire life. What must that moment have been like? I mean, even though he might not have believed in his brother, he still knew he didn't warrant anything that deserved crucifixion. What was he thinking during those dark days? Was he questioning God's justice? Was he... Questioning the religious leaders and the whole religious system. The futility of living under Rome. Was he just dealing with the heartache of losing a brother or watching his mother experience the grief of this sword that had pierced her heart? And there, Jesus appears. In the midst of all he's walking through and wrestling with? Did they embrace immediately? Did James recoil? Did Jesus speak peace to his brother? Did he need to rebuke or correct him? Did he reassure him with the kind of inside jokes that brothers share you just say I hate to told you I had say I told you so but this this so I've been telling you for years Jesus had shared truth with James countless times but this time it brought him back in this encounter james's older brother went from the impossible standard he couldn't live up to to the conquering christ he couldn't live without in his letter james holds up for us an unflinching mirror that's hard for us to just sit and consider the state of our souls before. I think it's so helpful to recognize that it's coming from the guy who grew up with, the, with God as son as his impossible to keep up with older brother. He knows the value of seeing The high standard of God being set before us. The conviction that comes so that we can examine the true state of our souls. What was, I'm sure, infuriating to try and measure up to became grace once he actually realized that that was never the point. Jesus fulfilled the law so that he could become sin for us. And instead of us receiving the penalty for our sin, he took our place. And he didn't stop there. But he gave us the inheritance and rewards of his righteous life. How remarkable. How amazing. And once James sees that the point isn't to compare himself to his brother. But to experience the good of what his brother has done for him. Death wasn't able to keep Jesus from bringing his brothers back. And he hasn't stopped pursuing brothers and sisters since. See, Jesus didn't just go after seeking to rescue James. He didn't just appear to the apostles or even to those 500. He left heaven to seek and save the lost. His entire existence on earth was in pursuit of bringing people back to God. Restoring them from the brokenness that began in the garden and has corrupted every human relationship since. And his pursuit didn't end when he ascended. He sent his spirit to reveal himself to the world and he has not ceased seeking and saving in the last 2000 years. Your story may be that you have came to faith when your parents or a Sunday school teacher shared the gospel with you but it was as we looked at last week his holy spirit Who gave you the ability to understand. Who made your heart come alive toward Him. He was pursuing you. Whether it was an intellectual hunger for truth that led you to Him. Or an awareness of your sin and shame that needed to be dealt with. Whether it was a conversation that blindsided you, or a testimony you related to, or a message that pierced your soul, it was the pursuing God over and under, filling every scenario. Because He so loved the world that He came for you. He didn't only die. To make the relationship with Him possible. But He pursued and called you specifically. In exactly the way that you needed to hear. In order to make relationship with God actual. He is at the right hand of the Father right now. But don't think for a moment that means He has stopped His pursuit. He has been about this work ever since He sought out our first parents in the garden after they ate of the fruit and their nakedness and shame caused them to hide. God pursued them and covered their shame. And He's been doing it ever since. So, when we read this call in James 5 to go after those that wander. We should do so with an awareness that no matter what our story is, someone came after us. Uh, There may be lots of different small S someones, but there's one capital S someone that has come after every one of us. We pursue others because God pursued us. Verses 19 and 20 again. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. I want to just give... A few other observations and encouragements from these two verses. First is where we start. My brothers, if anyone among you. Now, as we start here, James is not saying that those outside of the church or the gathering aren't important or aren't worth reaching. They just aren't who James is focusing on here. Do we need to be sharing the gospel wherever we are? Absolutely. And James is reminding us that everywhere includes places we might be tempted to think it isn't really necessary. He's not saying, don't go to the ends of the earth. Don't see this and think that. That command in scripture is absolutely clear. He's highlighting that we can't overlook those in our own homes, in our own church. Because no one gets in by birthright or perfect attendance. James himself spent nearly 30 years with Jesus without never really knowing him. So is there anyone among us that's exempt from self-deception or a heart that's prone to wander Every one of us needs the Savior. Just because someone is here doesn't mean they'll be there. The resurrected Jesus reshapes who we are and what we're about. His Spirit comes to dwell within us and empowers us to live life in a way that is distinct We need to be aware that it's not just getting the answers right on a theological test. James has reminded us that even the demons believe. And guess what? They know a lot more of the true false statements about him than you do. The need to declare and demonstrate the gospel begins among us. Which is one of the reasons you're going to hear the gospel again and again and again if you are a regular here. Because we never want to assume everyone gathered has an adequate understanding or grasp on the gospel. It is life to those that are far away. And it is the life that every one of us, no matter how long we've been walking with Jesus, needs to be reminded of and pointed to time after time after time. Second thing, we read, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner, here's what I want us to see here God uses his people. To bring sinners to himself. He could have used angels. He could have used a trance. He could have used dreams. And sometimes he might. He's not limited. Those things aren't out of bounds for him. But his normal operating procedure. Is using us. And notice specifically. Whom among us it is that he uses. Someone, whoever. No special office or title are needed. If we see someone wandering, perhaps the reason is because God wants us to be part of bringing them back. We aren't being made aware in order to talk about that person, not to ignore that person, not to shame that person, but to go after that person. Let us not aid and abed the demise of another by saying, that's none of my business. I'm aware of the idea of bringing someone back. Well, that can seem intimidating, particularly for those of us who don't like the idea of confrontation. But I want to reassure you, what James is talking about here does not require a showdown at the OK Corral. In fact, I think it's usually most helpful if it doesn't look like that. Because the goal isn't to win an argument. It's not to prove a point. It's to bring them back. It's to come alongside them. It's to see them one. Back to their true north. So... We can try starting with how are you doing? Is everything all right? Are you struggling with something that would be helpful to talk about? I've noticed, fill in the blank, you seem a bit distant, or I haven't seen you smile much lately, or you seemed a bit on edge the other night. Notice you haven't joined us lately for this thing that you really used to enjoy. When someone isn't sure if God cares or notices, or they just think He's waiting to judge and condemn them, it can be really helpful. Be refreshing. It can be life-giving. To encounter one of his disciples that care and makes God's care for them tangible. And James has made clear we're all deputized for this work. If you're a someone or a whoever, you're on the list. Number three will save his soul from death. The stakes are high. There is some question over exactly who James is talking about in these verses. Someone among you that wanders from the truth, that kind of leads some to believe that they have to know the truth first in order to wander from it. Um, The fact that they're there, they're part of the group, they're probably a believer, this is somebody who's backslidden. Um, The language of the sinner whose soul is saved from death, Leads others to believe it is someone who was never truly a believer. Now, James could be talking here about hell. It could be that he's talking about a judgment like Ananias and Sapphira received, which he was likely present for, a witness to. But in terms of our responsibility, does it really matter? Let's not split hairs where they don't need to be split. A fireman that shows up to a house fire and says, it'll burn out eventually, doesn't understand the nature of his job. Neither does the one who comes and says, you know, that looks like that fire, based on where it is in the house right now, that probably started in the kitchen. I only do with those that, to start in the living room. If we're seeking to live out the spirit of these verses, we don't really need to be concerned with discerning whether this is a person that needs to respond to the gospel for the first time for real, or whether they're a believer who needs to realize it again for the thousandth time. Each need to be convinced of the hope and transforming power of the gospel of Jesus for them right now finally number four and it will cover a multitude of sins wandering from the truth is not an intellectual divergence it is a moral one now the nature of sin ultimately sin can only be atoned for and forgiven in an ultimate sense, by God. But James makes us aware that we can be part of covering another's sin. We already mentioned how God provided covering for Adam and Eve's nakedness and shame by providing skins for them to wear. Covering sin isn't excusing or ignoring sin it's dealing with it on the level it needs to be dealt with. If someone sees a toddler running towards the road, you don't stand back and say, I wonder who I should call about this. No, you bolt after the kid. You don't need to get someone else. You don't need to get permission to make sure you're allowed. You don't need to collect advice on the right angle of approach to snatch them just before they hit the street. You reach out. God just might use you to stop them in their tracks. And if He does, covering a multitude of sins isn't just Helping someone realize forgiveness in Christ, which is huge. But it's also preventing further waywardness and sin. It's also not exposing their shame to everyone else, but dealing with it on the level it needs to be taken care of. Making it easier for a brother or sister to be restored both to God and to his people. Where does all this land us? What's our takeaway? It's this. We pursue others because God has pursued us. Friends, we have a God who pursues us And brings us back. We have a God who saved our souls from death. We have a God who covered over the multitude of our sins. Removed them as far as the east is from the west. And we have a God who delights to use our messed up selves. To accomplish all of that. In the lives of those around us. The band can come forward and let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who pursues. You are a God that so loved the world that you came for us. Lord, would you help us to never stop wondering? And being amazed at that great gift that you have given, which we did not earn, cannot deserve. Thank you that you came. Thank you that you laid down your life. Thank you that you have pursued us. Not just to make relationship with you possible, but to make it actual. Would you help us could you help us to be your agents at work in the lives of those around us? If we see someone wandering, help us. Help us to care enough, to love enough, to do what's uncomfortable, to lay our lives down, to love them, that they might be brought back. Fill our hearts with gratitude. Fill our hearts with compassion. Fill us with the boldness to go and to love and to care. On your behalf, we pray.